Well, good afternoon, and I'd like to welcome all those to an ESOP Center webinar with uh, David Craddock. Uh, David Craddock is going to be talking today about enterprise management incentives, uh, and he's going to talk to us specifically, and I think this is really helpful, about five genuine case studies, none of the idealized stuff, uh, actual practical case studies of putting EMIs, as they're called, into practice. Now, EMIs are amongst, if not, one of the most favorable tax ways to establish any type of employee share option incentive program that you might be thinking of examining or even administering. So we're, we've actually got a lot to learn. Uh, and whilst David does have these five, he's uh, reserved about 20 minutes for questions and answers. And I'd like to encourage all of you to please uh, do use the question facility on the GoToWebinar series. Uh, so I, Michael Minelli, will sign off here and hand over to David, and I'll be coming back to help uh, all of us through the Q&A in about 20 to 25 minutes. David, uh, the floor is uh, very much yours. Well, thank you, Michael, for the introduction. It's uh, great to be with you here again, and today we're going to be talking about um, enterprise management incentives, which is um, the most tax-efficient employee share scheme ever to be introduced uh, anywhere in the world. So we go to the next slide. Thank you, Michael, which um, indicates an overview of the statutory requirements. Um, it is a very highly tax efficient um, employee share scheme. It's very, very flexible indeed. And throughout my practice, we've actually developed something like 35 different ways of introducing enterprise management uh, scheme, employee share scheme arrangements since it was introduced through Finance Act 2000. Um, in order to introduce EMI, you have to qualify as a qualifying company, and any employee participants have to actually meet uh, employee uh, eligibility criteria. So to be a qualifying company, the, the company must be independent throughout the life of the, of the option, the whole period over which the option subsists. Um, at the date of grant of the option, the gross assets of the company must not exceed 30 million. And also throughout the life of the option, the company must be engaged in trading activities, except potentially for up to 20%, which can be what the legislation calls excluded activities. Um, to be an eligible employee, the individual must be an employee throughout the life of the option, um, must actually give committee time to the company that amounts to at least 25 hours a week, or if less, um, at least 75% of his or her working time. And at the date of grant, uh, they must have a material interest in the company, which is not more than 30%. So what I'm saying actually is that is that you know it might be that most people have, have not got any material interest in the company at all, but if they have, then it cannot be more than 30%. Okay, so qualifying company must be independent, must be engaged in those trading activities right throughout the life of the option. 30 million uh, gross assets only applies at date of grant. For eligibility criteria, it must be an employee and must have that committee time right throughout the life of the option. And at the date um, of grant, it uh, must not have a material interest of more than um, 30%. The maximum initial market value of the shares over which an option um, can be granted to an employee, and, and indeed that um, an employee can have as unexercised EMI options at any point in time, is uh, £250,000 worth of unrestricted value. And there is indeed a total cap of ceiling position uh, on the uh, total value under option for the company as a whole at any point in time of um, three million pounds. The company must have fewer than 250 employees at any point in time 
in order to grant options. So this scheme was introduced very much with a view to actually facilitating a, a tax efficient, commercially orientated employee share scheme for small to medium sized companies. So let's go on to the next slide. This summarizes the case studies that we're going to actually look at today. Firstly, a case study in relation to how to establish motivation toward a, a sale at some point in the future. Secondly, how to use EMI to actually create a long-term incentive plan. Thirdly, looking at a company where the commitment uh, was to actually create an employee controlled company in perpetuity, continuing generation upon generation. Um, case study four is um, uh, succession planning, showing how uh, EMI can actually be used for succession planning and, and also for shareholder investment diversification. And then case study five indicates a form of growth share that can actually be facilitated uh, through EMI. So let's go on to the first case study for motivation toward a sale. So let's just have a look at the facts of the case. This is a company that um, uh, when I actually was first introduced to them, I valued at £300,000. But it had a projected value in five to six years time of seven to ten million pounds. So it had the capacity for really fast growth. And, and indeed, that has been realized over successive years. The company is involved in uh, marketing software technologies and it particularly it pinpoints premium clients in order to work with. Um, the company had a corporate objective to exit in five years time. And in order to realize this ambition, it needs very high caliber engineers. The, these engineers are difficult to recruit in the marketplace. And once recruited, they're even more difficult to retain. So that's the scene for this case study number one. Let's go on to the next slide, which identifies the solution. Yes, it identifies the solution. Each of these case studies, by the way, are in three slides. Firstly, the facts. Secondly, the solution. And thirdly, interesting features. So the solution for this client was to focus on that very aggressive corporate objective of realizing value after a limited company life with key employees sharing in the capital sale value at the date of sale. We established a, an option price at a, a nominal value only, thousandth of a penny per share in order to maximize the benefit to the employee. So that's all they would have to pay in order to actually exercise the option. Um, we established lower level of share options for the support staff, recognizing that team performance from all levels is required for achievements of the corporate objective. So in essence, we were establishing this arrangement as an all employee scheme, but granting higher levels of, of share allocation uh, to the more senior employees. Um, exercisable events were restricted to exit positions, takeover trade, sale, management buyout, flotation on a recognized stock exchange, sale of trade and assets. So, so recognize there that we're giving very, very powerful focus indeed to this objective of realizing the value for the date of sale of the company, fattening the calf, as it were, for the date of sale. Um, in keeping with that um, aggressive approach, options would lapse for employees who leave for any reason whatsoever. So there were there were no good lever provisions. And indeed, that was the feature which concentrated and indeed continues to concentrate the attention on the focus for selling out in five years time. Next slide. I've just identified here some interesting features. We established an accumulating right of exercise. Now, what I mean by that is this. If each individual had a one off grant but they were able to accumulate the uh, right to exercise with 25% accumulated after each year's service following the date of grant. We decided to do this rather than focus on 
uh, the alternative, which would have been annual staggered grants at different option prices. So it was one grant with that accumulating right to exercise, 25% each year for four years. And the feature also established, the point I've already alluded to, um, the option price as no more than nominal, regardless of the market value of the shares. So let's go on to this next case study. Very different company indeed. Um, this was a, uh, and continues to be, a quoted company. It's um, a company quoted on the alternative investment market of the London Stock Exchange uh, with a value, when I was first introduced to the company, of £10 million established by its, um, by its market uh, quote. Uh, the company had a high level reputation in the business of passenger and freight rail transport. And while I've been working with them, they've gone on from, from strength to strength. At the point at which we considered introducing an EMI, the, the company already had embraced employee share ownership on an all-employee basis, introduced a, a share incentive plan and, uh, and a share save uh, scheme type arrangement. Unusual that because often the employee share ownership activity starts with executives and then we fan it out to all employees maybe one or two years later. But here they started with all employee activity. So the requirement was to introduce for the director and executive team um, a very powerful tax efficient LTIP. And for that, we chose to utilize the EMI legislation. Everything was to be focused on the retention of, of employees. Within that uh, world of passenger and freight rail transport, there's considerable competition indeed for high caliber executives. So retention is of the essence. So the solution, we established EMI with options granted as nil cost options, 100% uh, discount on the market value at the date of grant. Uh, we settled monies into an employee share trust, which I established for them. This enabled the trustees of the employee share trust to purchase existing shares, shares which were already um, uh, issued off the market through that um, uh, AIM market on which the company was quoted. Uh, we agreed performance conditions uh, linked to total shareholder return that must be achieved uh, if the options were to be exercised in three years time. And the options were granted on an annual basis. Yeah, so it was very different from the previous arrangement in case 31, where there's an accumulating right to exercise. Here we had um, options granted each year. So we had overlapping options with up to three years live options at any point in time, each with a different outstanding period remaining. So on this next slide, something about the, uh, the interesting features. Let's go on to the next slide. Um, the combination of the 100% discount EMI options and the employee share trust replicates the LTIP type arrangement. It gives an absolute guarantee of, of no tax or NICs at the inception of the scheme. And then the other interesting feature is that the staggered option arrangement, overlapping options as we call them, granting year on year, is a specific feature which assists in the retention of employees. It ensures that if a director or an executive leaves the company, then he or she will be walking away from value. And that's how it becomes a retention tool. So let's go on to case study number three. Uh, this is a powerful, powerful case study. Lots of interesting features as well. Uh, in this company, there was a commitment to establish an employee controlled company in perpetuity. It was a private company at the uh, time I was introduced to them. I valued the company at um, five million pounds. Uh, at that time, they had no plans to, to sell either in the short term, the medium term or the long term. And that's still the case. They've still got no plans to sell either short term, medium term or long term. Very fast growth company um, in the business of software testing. And, and they were able to actually recognize some very powerful opportunities indeed in the UK and throughout the world for their continuing growth. 
um, there was a strong belief uh, within the founders in the uh, employee ownership ethic for growth and for development and, and, and a desire to see shares passed down generation upon generation, shares recycled, as we call it, in perpetuity over those generations uh, between successive generations of employees. Um, we set the option prices equal to market value. So there were market value options um, set at the date of grant with employees buying their shares primarily through monies which were made available by the company through, through bonuses. Let's go on to the next uh, slide. This is the solution. Um, exercises were made on an all-employee basis, with all employees offered shares on the basis of a tiered structure prepared on the basis of objective and fair criteria linked to seniority. So senior people had uh, larger allocations of shares uh, under option. That, that's usual. That, 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 that is a usual feature. Now, we encouraged early um, share purchase by restricting the opportunity for exercise to the period of three years from the date of grant. And so this illustrates how we can actually introduce design features which meet particular requirements of the company, factors which they believe will motivate the employees into the behavioral direction that they, they want them to, to travel in. And then there was this additional feature as well, that in order to encourage retention, so once they've actually got the shares, by encouraging retention, uh, not allowing the sale of shares until two years after purchase. Yeah, so you can see how we introduce those design features in order to encourage be particular behavioral characteristics. And exercises are, are satisfied through the employee share trust, purchasing shares from existing shareholders and then dispensing them to employees on exercise. So a recycling of the shares. Again, a very, very powerful concept and very typical within employee share ownership scheme type arrangements. So these are the interesting features. Slide number three for case study number three. The employee share trust operates as a surrogate market for the shares in the absence of a recognized stock exchange. And the share valuation methodologies are used to establish a surrogate value for the shares, valuations conducted on a, on a six monthly basis. So a question I'm often answered is, look, David, it's all very well for these quoted companies. Well, what about the private companies? They don't have a market through a recognized stock exchange and they don't have a share price through a, through a quoted position on one of those exchanges. Well, this is where we introduce these surrogate positions, the surrogate market in the form of the employee share trust and surrogate prices on the basis of uh, recognized share valuation methodologies used to calculate the share value. And then that same 20% of the share capital is recycled through the employee share trust year on year in perpetuity. And, 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 and as such, the employee share trust adopts a commercial persona. Yes, it, it, it acts as a, as a market maker and it acts as both provider and purchaser of the shares in that recycling process. Let's go on to case study number four. This was a, uh, well, I think of it as a manufacturing company. Really, it's an engineering company. And this particular case study illustrates the, the opportunity to use employee share schemes for succession planning and also for shareholder investment diversification. Remember, the most tax efficient way and the most commercially effective way to introduce a management buyout, which essentially is what succession planning is, um, is through employee share schemes. Okay. So this company has grown steadily over many years and existing shareholders are in their late 50s and they're contemplating retirement. They've spent the whole of their, their working life, 30 years or so, building up this, this company. The engineering company is a business that has a long history, but with, with, with continuing potential, great potential, in fact, 
for new product developments and the capture of new markets. So existing shareholders, uh, the existing shareholder directors, they've identified successors who as responsible individuals they believe will be able to lead the business into the future. This is important. You, you need to establish your shareholder succession, but you also need to establish your management succession. And typically they will be the same people when you're working with employee share schemes. The, the shareholder successors will also be the people identified as, as management successors. And this is a workforce of, of 220 individuals. The successors who, who've been identified are people who, who, who know the, 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 the staff well and have a, a good relationship with them. Now, the existing shareholders, they want to retain some interest um, in the share capital, but they also want to realize some value for their shares. So you can see that there's, that there's a twin set of objectives here. Uh, firstly, to establish a credible uh, succession planning model, uh, but also to diversify their wealth to some degree out of the company in which the whole of their wealth currently resides, what we call um, investment portfolio diversification. So let's go on to this next slide, which shows the, the solution. The company establishes a, an employee share trust um, in order to uh, enable shareholder directors initially to sell a percentage of 24% of, of their combined shareholding. Now that realizes some value, that realizes some value for the 24% of the shares which are sold. Money is pumped into the employee share trust by the company, and then the employee share trust buys those shares from the existing shareholders. As such, the employee share, the um, shareholder directors have realized some of the value of their shares. Yeah? Not, not the whole of their wealth is now concentrated in this company that they've devoted their professional lives to, to developing. They, they are free now to, to invest those monies in maybe mutual funds, maybe properties, whatever they consider to be the, the, the best way to, to invest. Um, we organize the, the involvement of the um, uh, nominated successors in this way. Uh, the company granted EMI share options to the key uh, management team members. We used EMI, went up to the maximum, uh, but also we actually introduced a top-up above that. So you can actually, of course, introduce a, a, a tax-unapproved top-up above the tax-advantaged uh, EMI scheme, if you so wish. Um, and this would take the combined new management shareholding to 40% in five years and then 75% in seven years, with the um, existing director shareholders selling increasing amounts of their shares to the employee share trust, shares which then can be recycled into the hands of the employees when they come to exercise their options. And the company's taken deliberate steps to train these individuals. This is, this is very important, and I cannot emphasize it enough. Uh, to train these individuals to become very highly effective managers within the new era of the company once the existing direct and shareholders um, have withdrawn. So some interesting features on this next slide. Um, the existing shareholder directors, they realize cash through a capital gains tax transaction. So the sale to the uh, employee share trust at CGT rates is a capital gains transaction for which we actually um, obtain a clearance from HMRC. Existing shareholder directors have in the short term retained control of the company. Remember initially, they only sold 24% uh, of the shares. So they therefore at that stage even continue to control the special resolutions, 75% position which is required to control special resolutions. While at the same time, ensuring that their investment portfolio is not restricted to shares in their own company. They've been able to, to realize some cash. 
Um, the statutory corporation tax deduction is a very attractive feature for this company because when the company comes to um, administer the exercise of the options, the, the income gain, which is realized by the employees, provides the basis for a corporation tax deduction for the company in its corporation tax deduction, reducing the um, profits which are accessible to corporation tax in that year. And the new management team, it can envisage a future very, very buoyant for them. Remember, they're in a great market. They've got a, a very effective company built up by the departing shareholders. They can envisage a future with their shareholding escalating over time and their own opportunity in time for a realization of value through selling their shares to the same employee share trust, maybe, let's say, in 10, 15 years time. OK, let's go on to case study number five. This is a, a form of gross shares model. Okay, and it's not the usual form of gross shares model, but it is a very powerful form of gross shares model, which works very effectively alongside um, EMI. And it's based on what I call a frozen value. And I'll explain to you what that means when we, when we get to it. So this is a private company, which I valued at um, 10 million pounds, five shareholders who are resolved to drive this company forward toward high growth in order to realize the company's potential. So there's no specter of them wanting to retire from, from the company at, at this stage. This company operates in a, um, a very specialized management consultancy field. It has a very dynamic set of products and, and services for, uh, for, for enhancing the performance of their client companies. And there's unlimited potential. They see unlimited potential, not just within the UK, but in the US and, and worldwide. The existing shareholders, well, they want to preserve for themselves that existing whole company value, that 10 million pounds that I valued the company at. They, they want to make sure that in the event that the company sells, they will get that first 10 million. So if the company sells for 40 million, they will get the first 10 million. And we do this. We do this through linking EMI into a gross shares model, which I'm about to explain. The gross shares model would be available for uh, the, the existing shareholders, but also for the employees. And this company has a whole workforce of 140 employees who participate in the gross shares model as part of aligning their interests with the existing shareholders in order to drive this company forward so that it's ready for, for some form of sale. Let's go to the next slide, which identifies the solution, the features which uh, represent the solution. So this is, this is what I did with this company. I reclassified the existing ordinary share capital into a combination of new preference share capital and uh, new ordinary share capital. So, so, so the new preference share capital completely replaced the existing ordinary share capital. The existing share ordinary share capital, I said, are valued at 10 million. That ordinary share capital is no longer there. Instead, the new preference share capital is there. And that's what's now worth 10 million pounds. So the whole company value the whole company value of 10 million at the outset of this scheme arrangement is frozen into the new preference shares. And then alongside those new preference shares, I create the new ordinary shares. These are the growth shares. We allocate 80% of those growth shares to existing shareholders and 20% to new employee shareholders. So that, so that everybody, existing shareholders and new shareholders benefit from the growth There's an alignment of interest. Then on the sale of the company, let, let's say the company sells for 50 million. Great company to be in. Yes, you'd agree. I'm sure you would. I, I'd love to be in this company. When it comes to sell, when we sell at 50 million, the first 10 million goes to the preference shareholders. That was the requirement of the um, 
of, of the existing five shareholders, whilst the remaining 40 million is paid to the ordinary shareholders, the, the gross shareholders, 80% to the existing, 20% to the um, to the employees. And then this, this next slide is some interesting features. Let's go to this next slide, which identifies the interesting features. The gross shares, the ordinary shares, initially have a zero value. How are we able to do that? Well, that's because the whole of the value at the outset, the 10 million, is frozen into the preference shares. And therefore, by definition, the gross shares must be worth zero. So they are truly gross shares and they attract all future growth following the reclassification with all gain as capital gain. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, sure it is. Um, the employee share scheme that we use for the gross shares is EMI, Enterprise Management Incentives, which has the special form of entrepreneurs relief that was specifically created uh, by statute for EMI. And for EMI, this special form of entrepreneurs relief, well, it's available uh, provided a period of at least two years elapses from the date of grant um, to the date of sale. Um, uh, by reference to this last budget, uh, well, not the last budget, but the uh, the, the, the first budget of this year uh, in 2020, uh, which um, uh, Rishi Sunak introduced, um, entrepreneurs relief was cut to a million pounds. But quite frankly, that, that caters for most of our employees, even, even in large companies. If an employee is realizing um, a million pounds, well, he or she is, has done very well. For people who realize more than a million pounds, and yes, we have clients uh, who do that, our schemes over this last two years have created 20 millionaires. Plus, um, for some of them, um, for those people who realize more than, than a million pounds, well, the first million uh, gets the entrepreneur's relief of 10%, but the remainder is still within the capital gains tax regime and therefore uh, no higher rate than, than 20%, avoiding, therefore, the punitive rates of income tax and national insurance contributions. Let's go on to the next slide. Next slide. Yep, thank you. So this is my best wishes for your business initiative. Um, uh, our work within David Craddock Consultancy Services, it's employee share schemes and all aspects of reward management. It's also management buyouts, which are an offshoot of employee share scheme type activity, as I've already illustrated. Um, <clears throat> we also involved extensively in, in share valuation with, with myself as an expert share valuer. And we're also involved in investment education with, with businesses and, and uh, schools and, uh, and all parties. Um, this is my book, Tolly's Guide to Employee Share Schemes, if any of you wish to read more about this subject. But um, more than that, you have an opportunity to ask me whatever questions you have. Lots of questions, please. Said that this can be a truly interactive webinar and I can be uh, 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 as much help as possible to you in that business initiative. Well, David, what a tour de force, uh, sharp uh, and to the point and absolutely rich uh, with examples and information. And don't fear, we've got uh, just about 15 minutes uh, for some comments and questions, uh, which we can take on. Um, just, just to get things going a little bit, and folks, uh, do remember this is to be viewed in line with a previous webinar, which David has given outlining EMIs in, in total. Uh, this is to get to the nitty-gritty of what it's like in five hard cases. Uh, David Isaacs uh, says, as, as uh, Mr. Craddock is articulating, EMIs are very flexible in order to suit company-specific requirements in a tax-efficient manner. Now, you mentioned tax efficiency several times, David. Would you mind just summarizing sort of in 30 seconds why, uh, what this is better than what you might do traditionally? 
Hello, David. Well, good to know you're on the webinar. And uh, yes, let, let's summarize the position. So um, EMI, in terms of its tax efficiencies, is best understood when you view it alongside the tax unapproved scheme. So in the tax unapproved scheme, any increase from any uplift in value, shall we say, from option price to market value at date of exercise is subject to, to income tax. And if there are trading arrangements in the shares, then also subject to national insurance contributions. EMI facilitates a tax relief such that the increase in value from market value at grant to market value at exercise is completely free of, of income tax and national insurance contributions. The, the only element which is subject to income tax and potentially NICs at date of exercise is any discount which was given in the setting of the option price compared with the market value at the date of grant. So what this means is that the whole uplift in value from market value at grant to the market value at sale, the sales proceeds figure, falls into the less punitive um, capital gains tax regime. Yes. And for EMI, there is a, a special form of entrepreneurs relief, which is built into the um, entrepreneurs relief statute, section 169 of taxation of charge gains at 1992, which allows 10% um, charge only on the first million pounds worth of gain. But as, as I said in the last case study, uh, anything above that, it's still only in 20%. It's, it's not in 40 or 45%, is it? Which would be very punitive indeed if it was income tax and nicks on top of that, you know? Wow. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Now, we've got a, uh, one of the interesting problems, I think, with uh, EMIs and, and a number of employee share schemes is that on the one hand, there's the sort of legislative bit. And on the other hand, there's a sort of my personal circumstances. And so I've got quite a few comments here where people like uh, personal circumstances not discussed um, for obvious reasons. And then secondly, of course, personal circumstances get quite complex very fast and one doesn't want to answer on the fly. Um, I will be relaying, of course, anybody who wants to chat with David directly. I'm very happy to pass your details on and connect you. Uh, meanwhile, Susan Jones is curious about how does EMI compare with the tax qualifying plan in the United States? Uh, a very interesting question, Susan. And uh, we, in fact, we're currently involved with a client that's um, New York based in introducing um, tax qualifying plans in the U.S., uh, EMI in the U.K., and then we, we've got other schemes in different parts of the world for this client. Um, uh, the U.S. is, of course, the forerunner in developing the tax-efficient schemes. Um, the two countries in the world which have the plethora of tax reliefs are the U.K. and the U.S. In the U.S., we call them tax-qualifying plans. In the U.K., we call them um, tax-approved plans historically. We now call them tax-advantage plans, of which EMI is the preeminent um, example. So your specific question is, um, uh, how do they compare? Very, very favorably indeed. In, in fact, uh, EM, EMI compares significantly more favorable than even the most favorable tax qualifying plan in the US. Um, some of the sale conditions in the um, in the incentive stock option plan, which, which is the key uh, tax qualifying plan for executives in, in the US, uh, requires um, uh, what some what, what some clients regard, although not all, as uh, fairly onerous conditions to be met on, on date of sale. Uh, there has to be that the, the sale cannot take place within one year of date of exercise or within two years of date of grant if the tax reliefs in the US are to be realized. Well, there's no such restriction uh, between date of purchase and date of sale in, in the UK. And you've got this 10% entrepreneurial relief in the UK. You've got no such uh, lower rate like that in the um, US, although the tax qualifying plans do actually allow 
a lower tax rate for what they call long-term capital gains as opposed to short-term capital gains. So yes, EMI compares very favorably indeed, but properly structured the incentive stock option plan, uh, what I consider to be the foremost um, executive type um, uh, uh, tax relieving scheme in, in, in the US, where we call them plans, is very powerful indeed. There's also something called um, a restrictive stock awards arrangement, which is based upon a, an election, a section 83B election, uh, which allows for a, an early purchase of shares and you make that election and then future gain falls into uh, capital gains tax rather than um, uh, rather than income tax. So, yes, yeah, so, you know, you've, you've identified the two countries which are powerful in terms of their employee share scheme uh, release. No, no other countries in the world compare with it. But the EMI does does take the biscuit, as we say um, in, in the UK. It does really uh, it does really cut the mustard to use another analogy. How about that? Okay. Uh. I think it's it's the whole cookie is what you're referring to. <laughs> Absolutely. We've, we, we've got a trio of illustrations there between us, Michael. There we go. Um, just uh, an interesting point here. Um, I, I put a call out. Did uh, anyone in the audience have experience of EMIs they could briefly share via comment? And uh, I think it's Tony Reid uh, came back with an interesting point. He says, yes, a 20-person investment management company. EMI options were used for retention and tax-efficient incentives. Uh, no options exercised yet, but the EBT, the Employee Benefits Trust, is building up shares. It's yeah. attractive to personnel, uh, but their biggest issue was whether or how to agree issue prices with uh, HMRC. Okay. Um, this leads me to a question a couple of other people have got in the audience. Um, you referred several times, of course, to valuation, yeah. uh, particularly off-market valuation, and, uh, and it's a difficult and complex area, I realize, and also one of the skills that you need to bring to the party. Um, could you just outline maybe the top two or three methods that are used? Well, the top, the top two or three methods of valuation. Well, um, the, the first point to recognize that if there's an earnings flow, if there's a profit flow in the company, then um, HMRC will expect you to um, perform an exercise uh, which calculates a valuation based on earnings. OK, so we'd seek to establish the, the average sustainable post-tax profits and multiply that by uh, a value multiple, which is typically derived from the quoted sector, the, the um, uh, price earnings ratios in the quoted sector. Maybe we develop a basket of, of, um, uh, uh, of PE ratios, um, average them, maybe weight them, uh, um, almost certainly discount them, uh, maybe add a bit premium once we've actually um, uh, deducted that discount. So we multiply average sustainable post-tax profits by the value multiple to establish whole company value. Having done that, we, we discount further for minorities. Now, you, you've got to recognize also that there's something called an, an assets basis. You've asked me to identify a number of bases, Michael, so I'll do that. Um, uh, the net assets basis is, is interesting. T typically, that's not discounted um, unless there's some uh, question over maybe doubtful debts on, on the debtor's position or there's going to be an early run on cash. Um, or, or there's some question over maybe valuation of properties in fixed assets. But the position which HMRC recognize is that the, um, the higher of the two will always prevail. So it, it, in my share valuation activity, where, where I'm operating as an expert share value, whether, whether for employee share schemes or indeed for uh, standalone valuations, I'll calculate an earnings basis, I'll calculate an assets basis, whichever is the higher of the two, is the value which will prevail. 
Um, there's also uh, shares trading basis. So if there's trading in the shares and it doesn't necessarily have to be external trading for a private company, it will, by definition, be internal trading to a, an internal market and employee share trust. Then HMRC uh, do, do recognize that as the first port of call. But it might be that the share trading is, is historical. It might be that the company has escalated in terms of its development and profitability since that last um, share trading position was established. And therefore, it's conceivable that an earnings basis position could actually supersede a, a, a share trading basis. So, well, that's three, Michael. Earnings basis, assets basis, um, share trading basis. I could go on loads more. I'm, I'm very happy. Those are the three top. common ones. Yeah, okay. Yeah, uh, uh, Mr. E got back saying the valuation process you're describing is what he actually did for HMRC. So okay. presumably your previous comments about issuing options at nominal value meant that the companies were not profitable at that stage. Is that the case? Is that Tony's question? Uh, no, that, that, that's not necessarily the case. No. So the, the market value is one thing. We established a market value for the shares. What, what then do we establish as the option price? So let's, let's say we established the market value at five pounds. Uh, we might still choose to actually introduce an option price, which is no more than nominal value. Let's say the nominal value of the shares is a penny. So the nominal value could be a penny and the market value at date of grant could be the five pounds, in which case we've got a discount of, of pretty much five pounds. That five pounds is taxed at exercise, although all future growth from market value at grant to market value at exercise is actually free of income tax. Mm -hmm. It's all brought into capital gain when the company sells. Now, um, we've got an, an interesting point here, and question. I'm afraid... It's rare that there are questions that I, I don't understand, so I'm just going to pass it on directly. Uh, okay. Sarah Anderson is kind of curious. She says, um, how, how do you manage earmarking for USO options? I'm afraid I don't know what a USO option is with an EBT. And she's referring to uh, case study four, she thinks. Hello, Sarah. Hi. Um, so you've got to be careful with the disguised remuneration legislation. Uh, first port of call there is to be absolutely certain that you don't identify allocations to the trustees. Now, typically, the trustees will be. And, and just what was a USO option, though, David? I don't know what she means by USO. Does she mean ISO? Okay. Does she mean it's ISO? Possible. It's a uh, well, okay. We'd uh, uh, work with ISO, which is which is uh, investment stock options, okay, or NSO, which are non-qualifying stock options. Uh, whatever the type of share scheme or share plan. First port of call remains that don't communicate precise numbers uh, by individual or indeed individual names to uh, to the trustees. And typically the trustees will be independent of the company. It will be an independent trust company, typically based in in um, the Channel Islands, which is where the um, the expertise, the administrative expertise lies. So so typically um, they will be completely independent. Uh, and, and they cherish their independence. That they, that most of those trustees out there are wonderful to work with, and they will recognise that they cannot know the precise individuals or the precise numbers of shares uh, that have been that have been granted. So that, that's that's the first port of call. Now, in, in terms of records within the company itself, well, of course you'll have records within the company itself of names and allocations by name, but that will be privy to the company. It will not be submitted to the trustees. Okay. Uh, Matt Carter uh, compliments you, uh, but on the frozen value preference shares, could the value ever be unlocked prior to the future sale of the business if needed? Hello, Matt. Yeah, that, that, a good, very good question indeed. Very good question indeed. So um, w w when, I, when I actually share these case studies, one, two, three, four, five, 
people might come to me and say, yeah, David, you know, can you help us introduce five or can you help us introduce three or can you help us introduce two, whatever it might be. Others come to, to me and say, I like five, David. It's wonderful. I mean, it is a great scheme, isn't it? You know, I, I really think it's a wonderful scheme that, that, that we have there for that company. But it might be that you want to combine that with certain features, um, maybe from one of the other cases. Yes. So it might be it's a combination of five and four. So, no, you don't necessarily have to wait until exit date uh, to uh, realize value. You could actually introduce an employee shared trust, such as we did for that engineering company or the software testing company in case studies three and four. So you're looking, Matt, at a combination of five as the base combined with maybe elements from within three and four. Uh, there's a question about case study three. In case study three, uh, you, you spoke about the EBT purchasing shares from existing shareholders. What happens if they don't want to sell? Well, shares have got to be provided from um, some party. Uh, so there we're talking about a, a, a private company. If, if they don't want to sell, um, well, you know, they will typically control the company. There might not be anything we can do about that. But the, the whole arrangement is set up on the basis of certain assumptions that at some point uh, the trust is going to have to actually uh, receive shares. Now, those shares can come from buying from existing shareholders or they could come from new shares being issued. Now, clearly, if new shares are issued, that's going to dilute the existing shareholders. But they, they will very often be aware because I'll explain to them the principle that, you know, their absolute um, percentage might fall, but their absolute value may increase and the whole essence of employee share schemes is to grow the company to grow value remember you, you you're starting with that, that that small acorn out of which can come that mighty oak tree in which everyone can share so the whole point of employee share schemes is, is is to is to recognize that you're diluting um your share percentage in order to increase your value yeah in order to increase your value so yeah they might not want to sell but you know the fact of the matter is they're not really going to embrace going into this type of arrangement unless they've they've accepted the principles which I've explained as to how these matters work, which is that shares need to be provided at some stage, whether it be existing shares recycled to a trust or, or indeed new issue shares issued directly to the employees on the exercise of their options. Okay, I'm going to try and squeeze three questions in under three minutes, so we'll have to be snappy here, but you're doing a great job. Uh, the first one is you, you outlined five great cases and they felt very very good uh, of why people would do this yeah. but was it in the time available we understand as well were there one or two other examples you wanted to give of why emis might work had there been more time well i've got i've got a whole i've got files galore to the purpose of it was to grow an exit or to was yeah. there another well, the, 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 purpose, the purpose of the case studies was to in, in, introduce and, and, and to educate on on some key principles one the flexibility of emi yeah two the way in which a, a trust can be used very very effectively um three to recognize that uh, employee share schemes can be used for succession planning and for management buyouts um, and also for investment diversification, taking money out, the, out of the company tax efficiently. And also um, recognizing that this is a very, very powerful way to grow a business. Yes, because, okay. because you're working not just with financial parameters, you're working with psychological parameters. You, you're working with, with um, methodologies which, which tie into how people think about their approach to work. You know, all the evidence, all the evidence shows that when individuals are involved in employee share ownership, that 
if those schemes are properly introduced and properly communicated, they're the two caveats, then they will, and, and you're in a market which is, which, is, which is active and working and buoyant, then it will enable companies to grow their business. And that's very much the ethos of the ESOP Center, that employee share ownership is yeah. a huge driver for uh, equality and for growth and for productivity. Uh, last two questions, and we're going to have to be sharp. Uh, David Pardon. Isaacs again is coming back on HMRC stats show that EMIs over the last 20 years have been a huge success when you compare yeah. this success to the other less successful tax-efficient discretionary plan, the CSOP. Yeah. What, if any, changes would you make to the CSOP in order to reinvigorate it? Or I might add an addendum, or would you just say EMIs really cover it? Okay, David. Yeah, fantastic question. I've got two sacks to answer this, I think, actually. And it, it's a weighty conversation, so do feel free to correspond with me, David. But the, the key point I'd say here is that... Um, uh, EMI uh, is designed for small to medium-sized companies. So companies that at the date of grant have gross assets of more than 30 million can't enter into EMI. What I'd say is, is this, uh, let's take that, uh, that cap off, in which case EMI can be open to companies of any size, in which case CSOP wouldn't be needed. And the final question I'm going to leave to Peter Aylwin. Uh Peter asks, I think, a great one, uh, which is, to end on, which is given the present financial conditions of COVID mm. and all that, uh, what do you foresee are key areas of consideration uh, and an outlook over the coming one to three years pertaining to management buyouts in the UK, EU, and USA? Oh, uh, about 10 different things go, go through my mind at the same time when you ask that question, Peter. <laughs> do, do, feel free to, do feel free to correspond with me. A couple of things I would say there is um, values are down at the moment. Uh, FTSE 100 today is hovering around 5,800. It went up to sort of, you know, 7,600, whatever, and above. Um, so people might be waiting for some while before they believe that the, their company's reached a value that they can achieve. So management buyouts might be, uh, might not be so many in the next, in the next one to three years. But what about employee share schemes? Okay. People might not be able to afford what previously had been regarded as competitive salaries. So what do you do? Bring them into share ownership. They might they might be prepared to accept um, uh, a lower salary provided they've got a share interest. I think there's loads of research on that. My own research, Louis Kelso's research back in the 50s, Professor Weitzman, um, uh, and in fact material that I've produced only recently for the ESOP Centre. Uh, there's loads in that about variable pay. And, and, and variable option arrangements. I do actually see more of that, and, and that's what I'll be putting into the market to encourage companies to do. That's just two facets of, I've, I've, even more thoughts are going through my head and answer to that question, which I could share with you. Well, I've got to say that's a great note on which to end, because it, 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 employee share ownership is a good thing in all circumstances, uh, really. That's just how you do it at the time. Uh, folks, uh, as you can tell, a lot going on here. All of your questions will be passed to David with your email, so they'll have an opportunity to get back directly to you. Um, I asked him only to plug his book once, and he was very good about it, but I will plug it because it's a great book, extremely authoritative, although I noticed a couple of you would also like to get hold of him directly because not everything can be written down. Uh, and I think you did a great job, uh, David, answering a heck of a lot of questions in a short yeah. period. Uh, just to close, folks, uh, there are a lot of resources at the ESOP Center. I put, point particularly uh, to Newspad, which has just come out for May. So please yep. do go and look Great at some read. of the news there. Uh, Thank you, and we have a number of bulletins uh, available on the website 
uh, in particular, you'd expect there's one on employee share ownership, but on a lot of other related themes. And so, so those are there. Uh, this is the third in a webinar series uh, from the ESOP Center, uh, which we hope to make a very regular basis and seems to be becoming such. Uh, so do keep an eye out uh, for webinars directly on employee share ownership, but also on a wide variety of other topics I suspect people in this space would find equally interesting. Uh, it remains, therefore, for me uh, to thank David on your behalf. And David, I'm afraid it's a virtual hand clap in these uh, days of quiet hand claps. Uh, but also to thank our audience uh, for being so active and participative. And in 40 minutes or so, you managed to keep 40 people uh, very enthralled. So well done to you. Uh, thanks to all of you. Uh, I'm going to end the webinar now. And I hope to see you uh, at many other webinars in future. But please do have a good weekend. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.